Chapter Two of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine e. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: The Spicy Smelling East. The night before the steamer arrived at Colombo, there was a pervading sadness on board. Those who had been the wildest among the younger set of men going out for the first time fell into melancholy as suddenly does a puppy who has bumped himself in the midst of an uproarious game. There is a great golden moon, too, which intensified the melancholy, and it was hardly to be wondered at that some leant over the railings and gazed into the depths without answering when they were spoken to. So long as they were on board, all those young fellows, these prospective tea-planters and engineers, had been among friends. They were not severed from England, and the life on board was a holiday, an interregnum, which might legitimately be enjoyed. But now they were to launch off into a new and untried life, from whence they could not return for many years, a life where success or failure awaited them, and in which their powers and attainments were to become real weapons in the carving out of a career. Yet in the morning, when Columbo was seen rising behind her lovely bay of blue and green dancing water, these thoughts were dissipated as a mist before a tropical sun, and all was life and energy and high spirits once more. Once first sight of the East, can it ever be forgotten? Countless books and color illustrations and other people's descriptions have made it familiar, but the real sight comes as a surprise. One awakes suddenly from a dream and finds it true. The first excitement was the arrival of the husband's boat, bringing the men who had been separated from their wives for months, or even years. It was extremely interesting, for I had grown so intimate with many of the wives that I could not help having speculations upon the individuality and appearance of the husbands. It was a trying time for both, poor things, for the launch could not come up to the gangway at once, but was kept knocking up and down on the choppy waves nearby, while sun-reddened faces, crowned by topees, peered up from under the awning at the steamer's deck high above, where stood the excited women. Cries of, "'There he is! There's Daddy! See, dear! Oh, no, it isn't! Can you see him? What, that one? Oh, yes, so it is!' echoed around on all sides. Children grown from toddling babies, to boys and girls, were ready to shout Daddy to any sunburnt stranger, and the buzz of excitement amongst their mothers was tempered by a quite perceptible nervousness. Then came the rush up the gangway, the variety of greetings, ranging from the warm hug to the formal nod. It was very funny to see how mindful of convention were some, how totally regardless of onlookers others. Not long after, came our turn to go ashore, and as we set foot on the dark shady wharf the whiff of the spicy smell came to our nostrils, and we felt we really were in the east. It is better to see Colombo before Rangoon, for Colombo fulfills all one's expectations. Rangoon woefully disappoints them. The cleanliness of Colombo, the smooth, broad red roads, the rickshaws, the emerald green foliage are all elements of delight and then the drive along the gala phase parade with the mother-of-pearl waves breaking in creamy surf 
and the palms waving around the hotel ahead is purely entrancing. The Galafes is one of the finest hotels in the world. The wind blows ever through its lofty halls and open corridors and rustles the leaves of the great growing plants. One steps straight from the arcade to a smooth green terrace running right down to the beach, and in the evening the palms are decorated with countless electric lights set amid the foliage and gleaming like rubies and sapphires. To stand there in the warm scented dusk and listen to the breaking of the surf at one's feet is an experience never to be forgotten. It was tea-time when we arrived, and we were all glad enough to get a real cup of tea after a long course of ship's tea and condensed milk, and afterwards we went, a party of five, for a drive in rickshaws to the botanical gardens. The trees were gorgeous, with flowers, some dropping fire in flaming bunches, some lit up by large yellow blossoms like gloxinias, and others covered with a mass of mauve. The only thing that jarred the feelings was the sight of the poor miserable wild beast kept in a torturing captivity in cages, ridiculously inadequate. Coming back, the night fell with startling suddenness. One minute we saw a silver-blue lake against a mass of black foliage outlined on a saffron sky, and the next it was all gone and all was dark. The first night on eastern soil is strange in many ways. The mosquito nets, the little lizards running about the distempered walls, the squawk of the menacing crows at the window, all remind one strongly that one is not in England. I left early the next morning to rejoin the ship, leaving many dear friends behind in this land of delight. I felt the parting with two particularly, but we agreed to meet again. Either I was to return to them and spend some time in Ceylon on the way home, or they would come over and join me in Burma. The next few days to Rangoon were sad. Half the passengers had disembarked. Life had gone out of everything. The porpoises were still with us, and the flying fish. We could still go to the forecastle head and watch the great frill of foam falling away each side from the cutting bows, but these things depend so much for their interest on the companions who share them with you. It was not until the sunrise on December 8, when, aroused by an unexpected noise, I sleepily peered out of my porthole and saw the pilot leap aboard high over the bulwarks outlined against a sky of orange and red that I revived. We were at the mouth of the river then, and the water was French gray and very smooth. When we were still afar off, churning up mud between the flat spongy banks, we saw the gleam of the pagoda, and felt that, after all, what we had gone through was but a prelude to the real thing. Here was Burma. It is astonishing, that pagoda. From a distance it peers high, as if it stood on a hill, dominating the town. As one gets nearer it drops down and becomes inconspicuous. But when one comes really near it rises again, and is found to be on a majestic ridge. I had very little idea what I was going to do on arrival. The friend, Mrs. M., who had persuaded me to come out to Burma, lived at Mulmain, which is a day's journey across the bay from Rangoon, and I did not know whether she intended to meet me or not. Anyway, I expected some sort of instructions to be awaiting me, and did not worry myself at all. 
I was right to take things quietly, for I found my welfare had been very abundantly provided for. Before anyone else went ashore, the government house launch was alongside, and an ADC who came in it carried me off to enjoy the hospitality of the first lady in the land at government house, where I heard that Mrs. M. was already staying. The glimpse I had of Rangoon, as we rattled through, behind two fine horses, was unsatisfactory. The place lacks the color and cleanliness of Colombo. It is untidy, unfinished, a town in the making. There are great imposing stone buildings, it is true, but they are set amid small mean hovels, and waste places covered with lumber. The crowd is cosmopolitan, not by any means distinctively Burman, and the general effect is bewildering. When we passed into the broad, well-kept roads running through cantonments, as the European quarter is called, the residential part of Rangoon. Pleasant bungalows stood about in the midst of bare, burnt brown lawns, but here and there were glorious masses of flaming poinsettia and great bushes of royal purple bougainvillea. Government House itself is a perfect palace, not beautiful externally, for it is built of yellow and red brick and terracotta, but very fine within. On the steps was an imposing array of white-clad chaprassies with daggers in their belts, from which hung red tassels. I was most warmly and hospitably received by my charming hostess, whom I had already met in London, and affectionately greeted by Mrs. M., so soon felt at home. In Government House everything has been designed to give space and air. The hall runs right up to a dome, and the upper stories are carried round it in a series of white arcades. The handsomely carved teak staircase is in two branches, passing up two sides. The floor is of mosaic, and a high arch opposite the entrance shows a glimpse of one of the most magnificent ballrooms in the world. In spite of its airiness and spaciousness, the hall is not bare, for it is decorated with fine specimens of Burmese wood carving on a scale proportionate to its size. Two enormous elephant tusks are on the walls, and, as I saw it, there was almost always cannas, a kind of red and orange flag, a gallant flower, standing up in large faces and giving a dash of vivid color. The downstairs servants are mostly Burmans, and wear turbans and lungis of the purest purple, with snowy white ingies or jackets. One great charm of the native servant is the noiselessness of his approach. His bare feet make no sound on the floor. I shall never forget my first awakening in this new land. It was about four a.m. when I got out of bed and leaned from the high window. The moon was still up, shedding a brilliant white light that made the shadows of the thick foliage trees dotting the lawns black by contrast. The flat lawns, in spite of the careful nightly watering, were not very green. The smell of Burma came strongly to my nostrils, a smell I never afterwards could forget. It is not so spicy as that of Ceylon, but rather a thin, acrid smell, as of something burnt, and to me it will forever hereafter mean Burma. The morning that followed was glorious. It was like the fullness of a perfect midsummer day in England. The lawns were drenched with dew in the shade, but the yellow sunlight had quickly dried up all that came under its influence. Chota Hazri, consisting of tea and toast and bananas, here called plantains, 
was brought at seven-thirty, and breakfast downstairs followed at nine-thirty. Between these hours the members of the household enjoyed their daily ride, for later the tremendous power of the sun made itself felt too strongly for enjoyment. During the week I stayed here, I saw the society side of Anglo-Burman life. I was driven round the Great Lakes and Delusi Park. I was taken to hear the band at the Gymkhana Club. I visited Rangoon races, and attended various other entertainments. Everything was so strange that I felt hopelessly bewildered and bemused. The various races of natives in the streets were legion. The language, or rather languages, for Hindustani is as much spoken as Burmese, were so difficult. Every detail, even down to the beetles in one's bath, was so unfamiliar, that it was quite a relief to catch sight of birds resembling English starlings, and wagtails hopping about on the lawn. I was panting to know and find out something about the people in the land, but I did not know where to begin. As a tentative step, when we were sitting in the great airy hall after breakfast, fanned by electric punkas, I expressed a desire to take a gary and go down to the shops in the town. The tika, or hired garys, have one merit, that of being cheap. It is all you can say for them. You pay twelve annas the first hour, and eight the next for a second-class one, and a little more for a first-class specimen. The body of the vehicle is built on the lines of a box, or dog-kennel, and is so small that two Europeans can with difficulty sit there together, though six or eight Burmans frequently get in easily. The difference is not so much one of bulk as of temperament. The noise made by the iron-tired wheels is so jarring that you feel inclined to stop your ears all the time. This, of course, does not affect the Burman except agreeably. He likes any sort of noise rather than none. The windows or openings are provided with sun-shutters, often very necessary, but even when they are open you cannot see anything out of them but the road, unless you sit very low down, with your feet up on the opposite seat, to brace yourself from falling off. My first raid on the town was a triumph of incompetency. My friend lent me her butler, whom she had brought over with her. He was a Telugu, spoke English fluently, and seemed smart, but suffered from the worst defect of the native, glib superficiality. I was entirely dependent on him, as the Garrywallers do not speak a word of English. They really require to be driven themselves by word of mouth, for it is very little use telling them where to go, unless it is a well-known place, such as the station or principal hotel. They do not care to know their destination. It is best to shout, right, or left at the turns. But as I did not even know the Hindustani for right and left, it was not much use trying this plan. Nearly all the local class work in Burma down country, the work of coolies, garywalas, etc., is done by the natives of India, who have swarmed over in their thousands. The Burmans consider these posts beneath their dignity, and it is unusual even to find Burman servants in private houses. Up country, the native is not quite so ubiquitous, and the coolie work of loading and unloading cargo from the steamers is almost wholly in Burman hands, that is to say at present, for the native will no doubt arrive there also without any long delay. At first I could not understand that the word native invariably referred to the Indian native, and not the native of the land. 
This is rather perplexing to a newcomer. My Gary Walla was a dark-skinned man with yellowish wrappings and turban. He settled down on his box with his bare brown legs full in my view through the front opening of the Gary. The little rat-tailed pony seemed excessively far away, but this did not deter him from putting his heart into the business, and we started off at a tremendous pace. I had taken the precaution of getting a list of likely shops for what I wanted to buy from the ADC, and as we neared the town, which lay about two miles off, I called my escort, who was hanging on behind, on the little stand which always makes a convenient resting place for the native servant, and asked him if he knew a certain shop. "'Yes, Missy, very good, Missy, very good,' he replied. He sprang up again, and away we rattled once more. We pulled up in one of the principal streets. The man hopped down with alacrity and flung open the door with a flourish. I looked in vain for any sign of the shop I had come to seek. "'Is this it?' I asked doubtfully. "'I don't see it. It is somewhere near the Strand Hotel.' "'Very good, Missy, very good,' retorted my henchman, eagerly slamming the door, and off we went again. This time we pulled up actually at the Strand Hotel itself. I now began to understand that I was leaning on a broken reed, and that if I wanted anything doing I must do it myself. So I asked directions at the hotel, and finding out what street the required shop was in, I set the concern off in the right direction, and keeping a sharp lookout, shouted out to the driver to stop when I caught sight of the shop. Then, with a little pantomimic waving and gesticulation, I maneuvered him up to the right door. This business was more exciting than it sounds, for the shops stand back a considerable way from the streets in some places. The names are extremely irregular, and you have to watch both sides of the street at once. I grew quite hot with all this exertion. The next time I mentioned a shop, I asked my attendant if he really did know it, and this called forth such profuse assurances that I was gullible enough to believe him especially as I had been told he knew Rangoon. I had asked for ore, and I arrived at Roe. I thought at first that this was the native inability to distinguish between ore and Roe, but I have since come to the conclusion that it was nothing so subtle, but merely that the man, being totally ignorant of the shop I wanted, and quite incapable of confessing himself to be so, took me to Roe, at a venture, that place being a large general emporium much frequented by Europeans. However, between these points, I had seen several of the other names on my list, so I did manage to compass most of my shopping. But what with the unaccustomed heat, the dust and the glare, I was nearly tired out when I returned home. After lunch, which was at two, I was glad enough to retire to the palatial room, with dressing-room and two bathrooms attached, which I shared with my friend Mrs. M. I took the hot and cold water taps and English baths for granted at this time. I had yet to learn the ways of the ordinary bungalow. It certainly was very hot, and every one kept telling me what astonishingly hot, cold weather they were having but I am one of those lucky mortals whom a change of temperature does not greatly affect. Of course, I was grateful for the punkas and ice and midday siesta, without which the heat would have been unbearable. But with these 
alleviations, I felt ordinarily quite well and active. We had tea on the lawn, over which the shadows of the trees had fallen, and this was always one of the most enjoyable times of the day. The sky still shone electric blue, but the sun had lost its deadly power. Alas, the interval for enjoyment was short, for darkness fell immediately after sunset. Many evenings we drove between tea and dinner, sometimes round the lakes in the park, where the golden pagoda could be seen reflected in the water. Then we stopped at Gossip Point, where nearly the whole of Rangoon was assembled in all descriptions of wheeled vehicles, and afterwards, in the scented darkness, with the fireflies flashing around like diamonds, we went on to the Gymkhana Club. One day I was taken further afield to what are called the Big Lakes. The roads are smothered in red dust, and the great bullock carts were a perpetual nuisance. The bullocks are yoked so wide apart that they walk in the ruts, and with their swelling sides occupy most all the available road. In out-of-the-way districts, such as I visited later, I found out the reason for this. The roads there are often so heavily cut up that the center is a mere hump, almost grazing the axle of the cart. For any bullocks to keep a footing on it, would be impossible, but when they walk in the deep broad ruts the cart scrapes along with comparative ease. The manner of yoking is therefore a survival of days when made roads of hard surface there were none. On this drive we passed through a suburb of Rangoon called Coquin, and saw a native village of mat and mud houses and clinging smells, and came out at last by a rough field road at one corner of a mighty lake heavily set with large islands. There was an orange light in the setting sun peculiar to Burma, a color so rich and deep that it makes one feel one has never seen orange before. The still foliage rose indigo and black against it, and in the clear air there came to our ears the howls of faraway paria dogs, and the squeaking of ungreased carts, which at a distance sounds like a confused murmur of talking voices. But of all the sights of Rangoon, none can come near the marvelous pagoda. Other pagodas there are also, and Sule or Sule pagoda in the town might attract attention anywhere else, but the Shui Dagon, pronounced Shui Dagon, is the pagoda above all in Burma. It is seen in many aspects from many points of view. It is always peeping at you, and you can never, while in Rangoon, lose the consciousness of its existence. Then comes your first real introduction to it, and thenceforward it draws you again and again to see it under every aspect, under the garish light of day, under the mellow light of evening, and under the pure light of the moon. And every time you see it, you think you have never seen it before, and that you never can see it again. For that aspect which has just impressed itself upon you is the most perfect of all. It touches you as if it were a living thing, for it seems as if all the petitions and adoration and cries of sorrowing humanity which have risen up around it for so many centuries have impregnated the mighty spire, and given it indeed, in some sense, the quality of life. I had pictured it smooth and clean, with a row of even roofs rising up to it in steps, but it is all uneven and heterogeneous. The long ridge on which it stands is covered in trees from amid which the central pagoda or tope arise. 
and down one side and another run rows of more or less carved roofs enclosing the ascents the most generally used of these and the finest is that on the south and here i in charge of one of the staff was dropped one evening soon after my arrival the first porch or entry is new in tawdry built in 1903 on each side are leogryphs of immense size then one reaches the older entrance now partially hidden and passes on up a long slippery cement slope here and there broken by steps and lined by stalls laden with sweetmeats flowers cigars paper flags and many other things all of the flimsiest nature at the moat there is an opening and a glimpse of the surrounding country and then the way mounts steeply by numerous steps between columns painted white and deeply stained at the bases by beetle-nut ejections the fame of the shuedagon is a magnet which attracts buddhists from all lands its special sanctity is because it contains such precious relics viz quote, of the four human buddhas of the present dispensation the drinking cup of kwakathan the robe of Gaonagong, the staff of Kathapa, and eight hairs of Gautama. Another version gives the staff of the first, the water filter of the second, and a portion of the robe of the third, but since they are absolutely inaccessible, the precise ownership is of the less importance. After the annexation, a passage was cut from the niche facing the east entrance to the center of the pagoda, which showed that the original pagoda has had seven casings added to it. The Hiti, the umbrella at the top, was thrown down by an earthquake in 1888, and a new one, valued at six lakhs, was put up by public subscription and with gratuitous labor. For many years the Shwedagon was merely gilt and regilt. Since the beginning of the 20th century, it has been covered with thin gold plates as far up as the top of the inverted begging bowl whence the columnar spire rises through the twisted turban, the lotus flower, and the plantain bud. Rangoon for everyone except those who make their living here is the city of the Shwedagon. From Burma, a handbook by Sir J. G. Scott, K.C.I.E. At length, after a breathless ascent, we came out on the platform. Directly opposite was a shrine resting at the base of the pagoda, and there are others, somewhat similar, at the four sides of the platform. In the center rises the mighty gold pagoda bordered between the larger shrines by smaller ones containing images of the Buddha and by various decorations such as paper umbrellas in colors. Around this runs the broad pavement or court, looking like a street, edged on the outer side by shrines and pagodas, some of them very large, set at all angles, and of very various shapes and designs. Behind these again, to be reached by narrow passages between them, are platforms or rest-houses, looking out over the wide plain below. These are for the use of those who come to worship. On festival days, the platforms are crowded with whole families, who bring their bedding and cooking-pots, and settle down in great enjoyment. When we stepped on to the great platform, or court, the now familiar feeling of bewilderment was so strong upon me 
There was so much to see. Everything was so irregular, so individual. I did not know how to take it all in. This is, I suppose, a very common feeling with visitors to the Chouet de Gan. It stuns one by its intricate beauty. We were opposite to the first large shrine, and from its dim recesses two shiny brass machine-made faces of images of the Buddha glared at us. A number of priests were kneeling, swaying to and fro, repeating a weird, monotonous chant, which seemed a repetition of the same words again and again. White Buddhas with sly, sensual faces peered out from the shadows on each side. It was a veritable cave of images, and many little candles guttering in the draught were shining through a low tunnel upon another, the most sacred of all. We should have been obliged to crouch to enter that tunnel, and all we could see without doing so was a glint of the gilt on the immovable image. It is a curious thing that, though the images of the Buddha are supposed to be alike, they are most emphatically different. The expression is sometimes sensual, sometimes smirking, sometimes sly, sometimes powerful, and at the best serene and dignified. The newer figures, with machine-made brass cast faces, are very uninteresting. By far the most usual position is that of the seated Buddha, when his right hand rests on the right knee, with the fingers hanging down, and the left hand is open on his lap. This represents him sitting under the bow tree, when there came to him the supreme wisdom. The standing images show him in the attitude of teaching with the right hand upraised, and the lying-down ones, as he was at death, when he attained Nibban, eternal rest, removed from all earthly disturbances. The platform at the base of the pagoda is so large that even to walk round it takes a long time, and to stop continually as one wishes to involves still more. We could not stay longer than about an hour this first evening, and I only got a general impression, but I returned subsequently many times to fill in details. The chief beauty of the Shui de Gan is, of course, the magnificent centerpiece, or topi, which is always majestic and never tawdry. The strange curves speak to one, for the language of curves is as that of sounds, and is understood by those who know. The pagoda is articulate as music and when the setting sun shines on it, making it ruddy gold, as it did that first evening, there seems to be a deep, rich note of hopes fulfilled, and serenity attained, while in the morning light it is sharper and shriller, telling of the joy of childhood, and of the threshold of life, a radiant joy. The plinth of the pagoda is in tears and blocks, its bell-shaped body rises full and round, and tapers to the spire, and on the top is a tea, or so-called umbrella, not unlike the Pope's tiara, made of metal and gilded. Very few realize the wealth that devotion has lavished on this beautiful work, for the part of the pagoda which is wholly covered with plates of thin solid gold is large, and besides this the whole is overlaid with gold leaf. The tea is enriched with bells and with jewels, many of them real and in the sunlight occasionally a ruby or emerald burns out, scintillating and throbbing in rays of color. The tea alone cost nearly fifty thousand pounds, and was a gift of Mindan men 
the last king of Burma but one. The forest of smaller pagodas rising around the base seems there but to show off the stately majesty of the central one. But these pagodas, and the shrines also, are so marvelously worked and so richly decorated that they are well worth studying. The detail is endless. Looking down the vista of any of the streets, one sees all the pinnacles and carving and hatees in mighty disarray. Woodwork, silver and stone, tinsel and paint and mirror work, flash and flicker against a background of stately palms. Every here and there are tall posts, highly decorated and terminating in the figure of a bird, the Brahminical duck with long streamers and pennons of colored paper flying out from them in the light breeze. These are praying columns set up to propitiate the gnats or spirits. Some of the shrines are marvelously carved in wood, left its natural color, and others have the woodwork gilded. The most characteristic, and apparently from the worshipper's point of view the most effective, are those made of a mosaic of little bits of looking-glass set in zinc. Others are painted in rich terracotta, the color of the roads. Some are fantastic in the Chinese style, and some of the pagodas are a plain stone, and moulder away uncared for. Seen as a whole, in the burnished light of an unclouded sun at midday, the gilt and tinsel, the tawdriness and overloaded ornament, often shout aloud to the silencing of the grander lines. But to me they never were so blatant as to drown all the noise except their own, for I was fortunate. My first impressions were gained in the dusk of evening, when the stridency is hushed, and only the deeper undertones of grandeur remain. That first evening I was too much occupied by the pagoda itself and its attendant shrines to give much notice to the people. Besides, darkness was falling, and the colors of their clothes were not noticeable. But when I came again in the broad light of morning, with a camera, all the gay daintiness of dress of which I had heard so much shone out radiantly. I was not alone, for I was provided with a stalwart chuprasi over six feet high, who could not speak a word of English, and who, until I got used to him, embarrassed me a good deal more than I embarrassed him. The way in which he shooed the people away from before me as I walked up the steps, the air with which he held my camera or sunshade when I was not using them, and the gesticulations with which he called my attention to any particularly garish bit of mosaic work, were enough to destroy the nerve of all but the most self-contained. He seemed quite unable to understand that I could want to photograph the ordinary people, and I could not explain. Presently, however, my difficulties were lighted up by a small, a very small Burman, who wandered gently up, and, without being asked, attached himself to my suite as an interpreter. He explained to the Chuprasi it was chiefly figure groups I was interested in. He told the people to stand still for me, but even with his assistance it was not easy to get good subjects. There were few people about, and they nearly all knelt or sat in the deep shadows of the shrines and porticos. My friend told me this lack of worshippers was because there was a festival on the morrow, when I had better come again, which I said I would do. When I did appear the next day, I found him there as gentle and smiling as before. He told me his name was Mung Yun, 
and that he was a drawing master. He proudly brought out a sketchbook in which he had been making studies of the woodwork in the pagoda arcade, and he accompanied me so simply and naturally that I felt he was doing it out of pure courtesy and not from any idea of tip-hunting whatever. But the people, though more numerous on this second day, were as elusive as ever. In France or England, sunshine is enjoyable rather than otherwise. Many a group can one catch unawares for a snapshot sunning themselves in a street or on the broad steps of an old church. But in Burma, except in the early morning, when they love to squat down warming their backs in the sun, the people prefer the shade, and satisfactory groups are impossible. But I could not interrupt their devotions in the dark shadows of the shrines to ask them to keep still, and yet to take them instantaneously was hopeless. If ever I did persuade one or other to go into the sun, the stiffness of the pose completely spoiled any interest in the photo, so the net result of several mornings' work was not great. It is almost hopeless to attempt to give a description of the people. There were little boys with their hair cut all round in a neat fringe, leaving the center part a rather skimpy bunch of ends tied tightly and waving upward like carrot tops. The favorite color beyond all question is pink, and I cannot describe it otherwise than the pinkest of all pinks, the kind of color one sees as a rule only in coconut sweets or ice creams. Blues and greens were simply non-existent here, though up-country I came across a few. No doubt fashion in colors accounts for something, but it may also be that the sallow-faced Burman instinctively feels that blues and greens do not suit his complexion. The men and women alike wear lungis for workaday use. That is to say, skirts shaped like sacks open at both ends. The fullness is crossed over and tucked in neatly on one side by the women and gathered more in a bunch by the men. Their short jackets are also very similar, and though the men have often mustaches, I do not think I saw a beard on a Burman the whole time I was in Burma. In fact, the only difference by which one can tell the sexes, is that the man is never seen without his turban, generally pink, and the woman has her hair uncovered. He twists his scarf round his head, very often leaving a sort of bird's nest of dark hair in the middle. She greases hers, smooths it up tightly, and carries it in a flat coil immediately crossed over the forehead, and there is always a flower of some sort hanging down on the left side. An ornamental comb is a favorite addition, or a gold bangle encircling the coil. Out of doors and at festivals, the better-dressed women complete their costumes by a light gauzy scarf thrown round the shoulders as English women wear them. The smartest dress of all is a tamian, which occasionally replaces the lungi. This is open at one side, and shows the legs slightly as the owner walks but I saw very few Tamians and a great many Lungis. The Burmese girl, at her smartest, smears her face with a kind of paste called Thanaka, which makes it saffron yellow, and wears an immense number of diamonds all over her little person. She swaggers inimitably as she holds out a huge cheroot in her gold-bangled hand. The man's festival garment is a putso, a very rich and full silk skirt, gathered up in a great bunch. It is said that occasionally the surplus is flung over the shoulder. This I never saw, though I was lucky enough to see the most gorgeous putzos at the races. One large stout man, 
stout Burmans are not at all uncommon, had a most radiant pink silk putso, which must have taken an untold number of yards of silk in the making. But even at the festival I did not see many smart costumes at the pagoda. There were numbers of poorer folk in check cotton lungies, above which the brown skin showed at the waist below the jacket, which was sometimes figured with a little sprig, like a housemaid's gown. A particularly hideous magenta check seemed the favorite pattern with the men, and often a much-worn short coat of European pattern replaced the ingi. A weather-stained umbrella was a constant adjunct. All the women walk splendidly, which is no doubt because from earliest childhood they carry chatties and other heavy things on their heads, and in the wide alleys of the Schwedagon their royal walk is seen to great advantage. Their slippers are heelless and very heavy, with the leather sole. The toe-cap is made either by a simple cross-band or is of velvet. The difficulty of keeping these shoes on is probably the reason of the sliding step or shuffle so often to be noticed. These shoes are sometimes so absurdly small that the little toe must perforce remain outside the cap, and the heel falls beneath the instep. Stockings are not worn by the women. There was so much to see at the pagoda that I could have wandered all day with about its courts. In one place there was a man with a kind of draught-board before him, trying to tempt the people to come and stake on it. He rattled coins together and called out in a loud voice occasionally. What the nature of the gamble was I could not figure out. Also there was a clever lean-faced fortune-teller, who dealt out horoscopes on palm-leaf fibre, marvellously engraved with weird devices made by a sharp point. His face inspired respect, and I had my fortune told from my hand. The interpreter translated much, which was satisfactory, including one characteristic item, that I was going to have plenty money to buy elephants. There was a man sitting at a stall selling water to drink. There were nuns with shaven heads, looking exactly like men, and pungis, or monks, in yellow robes. This particular color, a rather dull but intense yellow, is a relief among so much pink and red. When I at last tore myself away from the pagoda, I saw yet one other sight on the way home, for I met a dancing, yelling crowd, with bells ringing and flags waving. From the noise and the beating of tom-toms, I thought it was some festival procession. In the midst was a canopy of scarlet, with little pennons fluttering from it, and at the end of each pennon was a bell which rang in the wind. All of a sudden I had a glimpse of an emaciated still body so scantily covered that the sharp outlines were plain to see beneath that canopy, and at one end uncovered and raised the sunken face of a corpse of a ghastly hue. The native brown turned sickly green. A more gruesome contrast could hardly have been found than this affectation of merriment and that poor clay. It was a Hindu funeral. End of chapter 2